if you lose a client, you fire people, right? I don't think it's a brilliant business model myself that just don't enjoy that. Like you have no relation to these people. Like they're just people working for a client that's paying you and you're paying them. You're like a broker. It's good to have you here. We're glad you decided to tune in for this episode of the Awesome to Know podcast. Hi, Mario. How is it going? Going well. Thank you. How about you? It's it's great. Yeah, we we are we are starting recording. You know, hours after um, Silicon Valley Bank was you know taken care of. Let's say so. This is very new situation. Let's start with this because this uh, exploded very fast, and you know. We will be probably seeing aftermath for quite a bit time in the future. But what's your like hot take on this? Because this happened like le- less than seven days. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I do agree. Bank runs aren't really common. Again, the the last one was around the previous financial recession. Um, it's it it's kind of weird because first off, um, first off, SVB has been a recommended bank for me for U.S. entities since forever. It's the first go-to recommended bank by Stripe Atlas, and that's the most popular solution for setting up an LC for funded startups from Europe, especially if you use Stripe, and other services as well, like um, yeah, different kind of LLC incorporation services. They recommend SVB uh, funded startups. Uh, VCs work with SVB ex- almost exclusively. So it's it's a pretty popular. It's, it, I believe it's the 16th. It was the 16th largest uh, US bank. Uh, so yeah, mm, it, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, first off, bank runs are something that could happen to every single bank out there. Uh, second, it tells a lot about diversification, about investment habits for the banking institution itself. So back to my first point in terms of it could happen everywhere. Mm, banks, by law, banks are only obliged to retain up to at least 10% of their deposits in cash or like any form of, you know, quick liquidity uh, type of cash. So if you have a hundred billion dollars by law, if you're a bank, you need to retain $10 billion and everything else could be invested and distributed elsewhere. It's very important because a bank run essentially means a ton of people trying to withdraw money at the same time. So if you think about it, it could literally happen to every single bank out there. So it's important because SVB is not super, different than other banks out there. Uh, it's more about how liquid their cash is or uh, what investment patterns slash habits they have and how sustainable it is to do whatever they're doing. And the second thing is actually them investing in treasury bonds, uh, yielding 1.5% return when compared to government bonds right now yielding 4 or 5% on average, meaning that lots of people investing with SVB would rather withdraw and go elsewhere. But Again, I don't think that's necessarily the most important reason, but it also facilitates, hey, why should we keep money here? We can point them there, and then leading to all that kind of VCs alerting and alarming all their startups to just start withdrawing cash immediately over the course of like 48 hours. So definitely a weird situation, but more importantly, it's more or less fairly easy to organize that against almost every other bank. And I think that, for the most part, that kind of happened with uh, crypto last year with Celsius and FTX and some of the other banks as well. 
Yeah, but what do you think about, you know, the future? Because uh, I'm looking at this from the perspective that this was designated bank for a lot of startups, technology companies, purely like B2B organizations instead of um, holding um, citizen assets like regular people. So this is, this is um, very directly, the impact is directed uh, like very narrowly for the technology companies centered around Silicon Valley and technology. So, you know, and now we know that they, the the depositors will be able to withdraw their their funds, so they are safe. But someone else will pay for it, and this is probably U.S. Uh, citizen tax exactly U.S. taxpayer. But you know, what, what do you think this will affect? You know, technology world, you know, globally on a on a bigger scale. Well, I definitely think that. Securing deposits uh, from, you know, the U.S. government was definitely probably the way to go. Um, I I don't think that it's, well, it's going to have a toll on U.S. taxpayers for sure. But at the same time, they do have some form of liquidity, right? They do have bonds that they can cash out um, and they're going to lose some money. And maybe there's some, you know, lenders and insurance companies that they were. I, I, so according to you know, people who know more than me and kind of experts, over 95% of the deposits can actually be retrieved over the course of several months without any repercussions. So we're probably talking about, I don't know, like a couple billion dollars or so that are somewhere in the dark, which isn't the end of the world for an entire nation with like trillions of GDP. So so that's kind of one thing. As to the, 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 the broader community, mm, Part of the crisis happened due to the fact that SVB's finances grew from like 60 billion to 180 billion over the course of two years. So this bank has existed for, I think, four years or so, and and tripling uh, deposits in two years is, is not natural, right? This means that the VC world went crazy, lots of people had tons of savings, and then COVID stimulus, and like lots of other things happening so that tons of funds got pumped into the economy in no time. Um, what will happen after? I think that um, VCs in particular and, and businesses, at least over the next few years, are going to become more careful towards distributing their funds. Um, liquidity is something that isn't super uh, helpful in all cases. At least it's not the thing that yields the best return. On the other hand, it's been a very uh, turbulent year with fewer opportunities to generate proper return. To be honest, most of my investments have been in the red or like slightly uh, cross break even. Um, so like whether you're investing in currencies, you know, inflation and just exchange rates are going wild. S&P is down, NASDAQ is down, real estate is just going down with like mortgages going through the roof. Gold, um, you know, oil is, you, you can't really predict what's happening. Like Saudi Aramco just reported like 160 billion in profits or so just from crazy oil sales. So it, it's kind of hard to predict what's, um, what exactly is going to, uh, going to happen kind of in the near future. However, the, the danger of keeping money in a bank is real and it's definitely concerning. And at the very least, I believe that more companies and more VCs are going to support diversification. Uh, personally, I've always been a fan of diversification and risk management. I own uh, accounts in several personal banks. Uh, I own, you know, uh, several company, uh, first off, several banks and different payment services like PayPal or Stripe 
for my main company. Um, we have WISE, we deposited cash there, and again, PayPal and Stripe. Uh, I have several companies distributing cash in different places. You know, I have cash in different brokers like investment bankers, um, investment brokers, <clears throat> and um, I mean, diversification is important. Everything could happen. Uh, I've personally suffered, let's say, PayPal blocking my account for 25 days. And that sucks when you have, you know, six figures there and you're supposed to be doing any sort of transactions, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just, I read different stories on Twitter and LinkedIn and Reddit. And some people with like net worth of, let's say, 45 to 6 million or more. Uh, saying, well, we only have one bank where our personal uh, savings that, that, are kept. Crazy. That's crazy because this is the the um, how do you call it? This is the the vibe I'm having, like I'm reading from Twitter as well. That's you know, there is no other option for those people. There is not you no. Know, let's di discuss what 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 bank should we switch to uh, in this situation. But also, uh, Toby Lutka shared that uh, Shopify is using thirteen banks. Mm -hmm. is spread out across US and Canada. So this is like a safe net a little bit. And also they were using SBV. Uh, and, you know, I cannot because <laughs> maybe this is like a very dry joke, but I cannot um, the, 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 the like um, phonetic resemblance with SBF is not, you know, lost on me. <laughs> I know uh, it, it was too soon. SBF was too soon. Like people SBF, should know better. SBV, it, it, it's too, too. <laughs> It's too close. <laughs> yeah. And, and and again, I mean, uh, you know, FTX happened just a few months ago. Again, it's not a because I believe that part of the mistakes are due to the fact that most people were have forgotten the Great Recession or weren't around to the Great Recession. After all, it was 14 to 15 years ago. Right. But FTX happened like eight months ago mm. or even, you know, even sooner. So. People should know better. People should know how to diversify better, and they should have been ready for that early on. Uh, you mentioned uh, Shopify, I believe. Uh, I use Mercury for one of my companies, and Mercury uh, has uh, FDIC insurance of a million dollars instead of 250 because they're also spreading across, I think, JP Morgan and like a few other banks, right? So they do that. Uh, diversification themselves by just using several banks for the same thing. And I think it's a pretty straightforward thing to do. Uh, Dula and Dula Banking, which I'm also using, they're also kind of using a network, a uh, sweep network, I think, of different banks to accommodate that. So just relying on one network and, and getting lost in translation is, is kind of troubling as an idea. And the other thing for SVB in particular is long-term treasury bonds. I mean, that's not, I mean, startups, have very liquid needs, right? They acquire companies. So when it comes to SVB and to the liquidity of startups, I believe it's most startups have very unique needs and, and they pivot really quickly, meaning it's not like signing a government or uh, enterprise contract, like five years, getting the same paycheck, like doing the same thing or doing one investment, then forget about it. Startups do a lot of crazy stuff, right? They find a niche and they 10x their marketing or sales investment or PPC, or they decide to acquire five different companies and, and merge or, or, or do something else. So I believe that for that startup tech community, 
liquidity is pretty important. Additionally, we do have lots of VC funds being pumped in there. Like we are talking like Series A investments of like 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars just pumped into one account. So, and, and then startups have to allocate them one way or another, right? So I'm pretty surprised by investing in like 10 year treasury bonds uh, when your bank probably needs a lot more liquidity than you think. So that's also another troubling fact, I guess. Yeah. Do you think there are another, because, you know, this is, um, I think bank is not number one thing you, you worry about when you start business or when you are growing business or scaling up business. So at some point you worry about a trillion other things uh, <laughs> out there, not, not, not bank. So what are the other options that might be problematic or worrisome uh, and you think about them only once they happen not before yeah i hear uh, just you know on a side note i hear you cannot have um you cannot have an accountant good enough there is like always need for an even better accountant so we, we came through this <laughs> so i also uh, you know tell from my own experience about this well uh first off i've been I've been uh, kind of teaching business uh, courses here and there, and kind of some of my resources, including my blog, has been uh, taught uh, at over 40 different universities. Uh, and I've been trying to research more on kind of the, the broadest business challenges out there. Again, as a business advisor as well, I've been working with like over 400 different clients on solving different problems and trying to identify and assess kind of what are the, the commonalities among them. Uh, so for the most part, I do actually have a list currently. It's the 38 top business challenges broken in, in different categories, namely management, recruitment, sales, marketing, technology, um, operations, and, and different forms of compliance, uh, and operations being business strategy as a whole. Uh, so compliance, the last one, is the more you grow, the more compliance becomes the weakling, kind of the Achilles heel. Meaning that what happens with companies like Meta or, or Alphabet or, or kind of the, the other broad companies? They are undestroyable. You can't kill a company unless they really screw up with accounting, and billing and taxes and stuff, or uh, any uh, you know class law action suit that 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 that's really going to ruin them. So it's finances or legal that could kill a, a growing business. So with that in mind, again for starters, you have you know looking for product market fit, sales marketing, you know product meaning technology, recruitment, management, building a kind of legit team. But the more you grow, like whenever you have some form of monthly recurring revenue or ARR on top of that, uh, then things are moving in the right direction. It's all about velocity, like is it going to be slower or faster, but you need to have your back covered. And I think that like in, in SVB's case, 97% of all deposits were not insured, meaning that 97% of the accounts had over that minimum of 250. So I would expect that we are talking about you know, larger businesses, to, to put it mildly, uh, that have to spend more time thinking about diversification and legal risk and, you know, GDPR, CCPA, taxes, you know, anything uh, across that line. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, what about, let's say, uh, a small aspiring agency, you know, let's say from WordPress, WordPress world, what is like number one uh, thing that, you know, people get 
get wrong in, in in terms of building business because let, let's dig dig into this this path let's let's move this the, 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 this way about thinking about hypothetical organization you know around wordpress centered around wordpress that is you know having some traction already you know uh, maybe a couple of employees and and building websites so what can go wrong apart from not having clients but you know what would that person running the agency should do in order to you know not to um, follow and learn from their own mistakes but rather from the wisdom of others and and failed others as well so within the wordpress ecosystem uh, both services and products um, i would say that there are a couple of different thoughts i have in terms of you know, business strategy or diversification or whatever it is. So the first one in terms of strategy, in terms of scaling or like in terms of just making sure that it works is recurring revenue. Uh, most companies, and that's why, you know, at Devrix we invented WordPress retainers, we coined them in 2015 or so. Uh, and that's the strategy, that's the business model that we believe is the most successful one. We've seen that working like the entire legal industry is working, you know, through retainers, uh, lots of marketing companies are doing retainers. So I don't see a reason why you know tech and business are not kind of spending more time on that. Uh, so so that's kind of on on the one hand, it's it's thinking more about retainers and recurring revenue, simply because ending up with the feast and famine cycle is pretty dangerous. Uh, it's really troubling if you if you just chase sales and you're always underworked or overworked, you can't cope up with all the work, or you know, there's a two month gap when there's no sales happening and you're really in the red. So escaping from that, particularly for service-based businesses, is one of the most important things that I would say. Uh, as to like the other risk, like once you hit some level of scale, um, uh, first off, I don't think that most companies are dealing with that level kind of uh, scrutiny because it's it's more ecosystem. Most websites are small. Like it's it it's not like we're talking you know serving banks, something that really needs to be super insured because you're talking about money, personal inf information, and credit cards and stuff. So it's it's less risky. But I think the biggest risk is is actually trying to project growth that's not sustainable. Meaning that there are very 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 few large companies large if at all large in the wordpress ecosystem so i would say that most of the problems that other businesses have outside of wordpress are real simply because the scale of a regular company outside of the wordpress bubble is a lot higher slash larger bigger than what we see in wordpress if you think about the largest agencies uh, I would say probably I don't know Tenup, Web Dev Studios, Human Made, Rousseau. Tenup I think are like 200 something people. Web Dev are 40. Human Made are against 70 or so. They had layoffs recently, so that's also a problem. So we're talking the largest agency is 200 something people. If you go to India, the average agency is like 300 people because they're doing outsourcing, right? So the largest WordPress agencies are smaller than the average dev firms in India. One very specific example, right? And and same for product companies. Outside of, let's say, Awesome Motive by Sead Bauke and maybe Gravity Forms, Yoast. Yoast got sold, by the way. So like there are five or six companies, WooCommerce, if you count them, even though they're automatic. So there are like five product companies making, you know, maybe over five or if at all they do like 10 millions in revenue. That's nothing compared to 
most businesses outside of the WordPress bubble. So I would say just think of the total addressable market in WordPress and, and you know, just either calibrate to kind of what's achievable or try to diversify like plan for like five or 10 different companies so that each one can achieve some status or something like that. But is it problem? Is it a feature, not a problem? Is it a fe like like a feature um, of uh, WordPress technology, or is it a feature because you know WordPress started as a as a blogging platform, so it naturally grew from tiny, tiny little pieces, tiny little use cases of of building software for uh, for for a blog page. But is it a feature of a technology, or is it a feature of a agency model? Because when you look at the uh, like corporate um, technology integrators, they are big. They have a couple of hundreds of people. They have revenues in tens, if not hundreds of million euro per hour. I wanted to say per hour, per, per year. Per <laughs> <laughs> so, employee would be you know, nice, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not the, not not that uh, not that feature. <laughs> yeah. So, what's your take on this? Um, no, it's not the technology as in like code base, but it's about the perception and about the ability to serve different markets and about the possibility to launch a product in no time, like just building an MVP. So it's a combination of all of these things. So for the, the main problem, I think it's branding and, and like just the race to the bottom, right? The main problem is that when you look up WordPress, or when you look up like WordPress themes, you're going to find like free, 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 free discount, like monthly club or like annual club, you know, pay $49 and you have like limited access to like a bunch of different teams or so. Like that predominant field, like sites that come up and look for, uh, for WordPress is that will be beginner, how to do whatever you want yourself with, you know, following three steps. So it really looks easy and it really makes it appear as everyone can do that, meaning that lots of people start doing that without having the necessary qualification or experience or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so that's kind but of one I, of... Mm -hmm. sorry, sorry if I may rudely interrupt you, but you know this is what you are referring to. This is what I uh, understand as the technology, like the direction that, that the technology comes from. So coming from something very easy to start doing fiddling with and then building, being able to build something relatively easy because this was the way it meant to be. To, to, to be able to create stuff very easily. But then at some level, you have to be, you know, a developer, actually. You have to understand algorithms and integrate third-party tools and APIs and everything. And suddenly there is no longer uh, a plugin for that or you end up with um, 64 plugins. And we had clients like this with 64 plugins um, up and running there. So. And then you have no enterprise um, level of um, of implementation because it's perceived as a bigger block. It's not like WordPress for enterprise. So there is that huge chasm between, you know, 99% of the market for bloggers um, being able to do this out of the box with a ready-made free or, you know, $5.49 theme. And then suddenly you have, you know, huge publishers with uh, 100, 200 people strong development teams, uh, teams, um, you know, and not the themes, but teams uh, of people building their platform. And there is like huge discrepancy between 
this and and enterprise level and this is all the same technology so this is this is what i'm referring to as the technology that is so easy to start doing something not necessarily very useful that you have so small agencies because it's so easy to start something sorry for the long rant i i'm told i can't ask such long questions but i hope you remember the beginning still <laughs> no I, I i do and like I agree with you on the premise. I'm not sure it's the technology, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, this isn't the problem that we've ever seen in, well, maybe in Joomla, but we haven't. That's not a problem we've seen in Drupal. Drupal is also an open source PHP framework slash CMS. Well, framework, yeah, and um, and. It, again, PHP developers can work with either, and they're building websites. You can still spin up a website with Drupal in a day, but it's not branded as such. It's not marketed as such, right? So that's why they mostly work with like large communities and governments and like other large projects. The average cost of a Drupal project is maybe three or four or five times more expensive than a WordPress project, right? You can also build themes with Drupal too. So I think that that's where branding kind of comes in. You can still start with Drupal. It's just, I know it's not as intuitive. It's not as easy to feel like you have it all. It's more like, yeah, you, you see that there's something, but you know you need professional help because Drupal hasn't really branded itself for for that. Um, and I can also give other examples with kind of companies like Webflow, like site builders. They're also do it yourself and kind of no code, but it's actually expensive to hire a Webflow company. Like most that we've seen and worked with charge as much, if not more, than most WordPress companies, even though they mostly connect Zapier to other plugins and they do design work, right? You know what I'm saying? So it's branding a no-code tool that doesn't even require that level of skills and charging more than what WordPress does just because of the race to the bottom. And then again to WordPress, like if we compare WordPress with Drupal, Drupal is owned by Acquia, which is you know the Drupal version of Automatic. But Automatic is all about you know, free freedom of speech and democratized publishing, and we are going to give you WordPress com sites for free, and you know, Jetpack for free, and Akismet almost for free and stuff. And they themselves are trying to reverse that trend. You know, they're trying to do the freemium product. Like, hey, Akismet, you still need to pay something. Hey, Jetpack, by the way, you need security. You need DDoS. You need that. You need. So they're trying to reverse that trend because it's not sustainable. Uh, but but it's so entrenched in what WordPress does and like free, 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 free everything and like everything is turnkey. WordPress being popularized with the famous five minute install, that it's really hard to to get away from that brand. So that's why I think it's not technology as in the, the code or the software. It's about that ecosystem and, and, and everything else. Like marketing? How is it marketed to the um to the developers? And 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 businesses, yeah. but you know, on the same note, I I, I was talking about this with one of um, Drupal um, agencies in in uh, in in Austria, and they said that, for example, Drupal is selected by big organizations and is is white listed as the technology that that the only technology from the open source let's say world that can be used on a certain projects and uh, for whatever the reason and and you cannot fight with it once it is whitelisted and to <laughs> do something in drupal you have to spend 
much more time than on WordPress because, for example, you have to make Drupal accessible, whereas you know WordPress you you don't have. Like it's it's easy on on WordPress as well, whereas in Drupal you have to do stuff you know from scratch over and over again nearly. And and I don't get this as the idea that it's better solution if it takes five times as uh, um, five five times more um, as it could be possible on WordPress. So that, that's strange for me. But always, like you, you mentioned that Drupal is bigger in terms of the project size. I have this feeling that Drupal is extremely heavy in terms of, you know, you, you want to do something and then, you know, I, I feel tired from thinking about what you have to do with Drupal. But this is like sub, my subjective feeling about it. I mean, so I'm biased. First off, I run a WordPress agency and have done yeah, for too. like 30 years. <laughs> uh, so, so it's kind of hard to you know, relate to that. But uh, what I can say is I actually come from enterprise-grade development. So my I'm a certified Java developer, for example, and among other things, I've done .NET development. So, so I come from enterprise. And like I, I came to WordPress through PHP by just getting tired from building nine-month projects, well, building six-week projects in nine months. So that's why I transitioned to PHP. And then I got tired by building, tired of building admin panels and, you know, add edit and access control list and user levels. So I decided to just use WordPress for all of that and only focus on the business logic, right? So for me, this was the natural transition of starting with like stuff that makes sense and works and just building on top of that instead of reinventing the wheel or spending, you know, 10 times more, which is kind of what you said. But it's true that um, e-commerce project in Java normally costs, you know, 500,000 and more uh, while well, WordPress project in WordPress starts from like $500. So it's clear that just setting up WooCommerce uh, is a thousand times more competitive and then there's still enough demand for Java. So it, 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 it's just interesting. I see that in other ecosystems, Microsoft have SharePoint or there are also uh, ServiceNow and, and some of the other kind of enterprise gradish ecosystems. Uh, and they're doing pretty good because every single client is qualified. Every single client comes with at least, let's say, 20 grand or 30 grand or 50 grand or more just because they know it's an expensive implementation. And it's kind of easier. They may have fewer clients, but it's not the race to the bottom. So every now and then I'm thinking, isn't that a better thing, right? Um, yeah, thanks for this and uh, <laughs> thanks for moving around because for our listeners there were some te technical problems, but I wanted to uh, to um, to dig deeper into this um, development of the agency because um, with so many small sites, projects and tiny, like tiny, um, tiny projects um, and little concentration, which is a good and a bad thing, but I wonder what is... How that average, let's say, average size agency, what that agency should do in order to be bigger, grow bigger, you know, um, and probably also professionalize, professionalize itself. So what, what would be the good, like, um, some, some tips for the aspiring agency? Yeah, so uh, I think there are kind of two, two ways to really improve that. The first one is specializing. And just either niching down or just you know being the best kind of what you do. The second thing is really uh, um, making sure that recurring revenue and kind of passive revenue as well are a priority for you. So 
I, I think it's extremely hard to keep growing and getting better at what you do if you invest the vast majority of your time slash effort into outbound sales, right? Meaning that it's not a super sustainable way to, to grow a company in a sustainable way. Now, again, I know companies, they do that. Um, you know, they, they kind of have a pipeline of several months ahead and they can afford to just uh, say, yeah, of course, you're going to start a, mo- a project in like four months, right? But I, it, it's really hard. Again, honestly, sometimes you have leads just saying, can you start today, right? Of course, it's not realistic, but maybe starting in a week is, is something that's pretty well demanded. And if you say, yeah, we can start in three months, honestly, we're just not going to work with anyone. Um, so it's possible to do that. I know that some of our kind of agency partners do that, but but I don't think it's super sustainable. So the other option is just really being the race to the bottom. So you're just setting up websites for a day and you have you know 200 people installing WordPress with a premium theme and like five plugins and then customizing. So those are two ways to make it work unless you have recurring revenue in mind. And the other thing again is specializing. The only way to not uh, end up with a race to the bottom is not competing with anyone who's just generating well or charging you know 20 bucks per hour and in order to do that you need to prove expertise one example is we have scaled maybe over a dozen publishers over you know with hundreds of millions of pages per month uh several over 500 million pages per month and so forth so if you think of like bbc generates i know 1.5 billion or so we have several generating i know 900 million pages per month so when you think about that is like if you want the bbc experience we can deliver that but you simply cannot pay 20 bucks per hour or 40 bucks per hour for that matter right you just need to pay a five-figure retainer and and then it would be possible in a few months as we keep scaling and growing and set up the right infrastructure, tooling, profiling, benchmarking, and stuff. And we know how to do that. And on top of that, we've done that, we've done that with AdOps expertise in, in place, meaning that we have worked with lots of different ad vendors. I, I won't name many names because it's a long list. We have built custom pre-bit wrappers from scratch. We can optimize and yield better revenue for you and so on and so on and so on, right? So like that's kind of one context. So like, we built our very first WordPress SaaS back in 2013, and there have only been two or three other agencies ever building WordPress SaaS back then. If you look up WordPress SaaS in Google, we are in the top three results in Google SERP. We've done that forever. We've scaled SaaS uh, networks with over 100,000 subsites in a network built by us and scaled by us for businesses generating tens of millions in revenue. So like that's that's kind of one narrative that we use, for example, right? Uh, we have a few more for kind of different uh, companies. Like when someone says, hey, WordPress cannot scale, like WooCommerce cannot scale, and we say, well, we have like three e-commerce websites building over 60 million in revenue, right, through WooCommerce. So that's uh, that's kind of one way to, to, to kind of ensure that we know how to scale WooCommerce, we can make that happen, and WooCommerce can st- scale as much, and we know from experience, right? So I can kind of keep listing some uh, success stories of sorts, but but that's one example of how to really gain that level of experience in order to ensure that it, it's something that you know you you're worth getting paid for, at least a fair price. Yeah, and. This is amazing. I mean, the scale is amazing. Um, with the scale you did, 
No, how big is how big is your agency? About fifty people, forty-five, fifty or so. All right. So I, I guess you know with the big marketing agencies, you know, as a comparison, this is like still a boutique agency, right? So it's like it's it's not huge, right? It's it's very significant, but it's not huge, right? So yeah, 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 definitely. Don't don't. Yeah. Yes, it's it's a pretty mid-sized, I would say, if not on the small end agency compared to to like other businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with the scale, you know, working with such businesses isn't like, I would expect a bigger size of the organizations. And don't take take it as a positive question. I'm not like, uh, you know, I, um, it's not a negative question. I want to understand, you know, from your also perspective, is it like, I, because I, I treat this as a huge success, this, this kind of um, corporations. Again, don't take me as a, a, a like aggressive question, but what I'm I'm trying to to understand why do you think you should be bigger, or or is it like you know this is perfect sweet spot for the services you are providing because I I have this uh, you know from software houses there is like in Poland there is a ton of organizations that are provide services you know development services and you know of course during the pandemics and and or, or because of the pandemic stimulus and so on. They onboarded a ton of employees. They scaled, you know, from being 200 people to 400. If they were 800 people, they are now one, uh, you know, 1400. So the, this is the, the the landscape for me. And you know, we have like 20 people, nearly 20 people. You have roughly 50 people, and you are working with the huge organizations that are using WordPress. So compared with those, you know, other vendors, you know. I would expect a bit more organization, which not necessarily is a good thing to have, right? So I'm not judging, right? I'm just thinking about the scale here. Yeah, uh, no worries at all. And again, I'm not like Egon Manak or something, just expecting to have like a gazillion different people. That's definitely not the case. Uh, and, and yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like we've been consistently ranked as a top 20 WordPress agency for the past maybe six or, or seven years, right? And we are just 50 people, right? That's abnormal. It, that again, not that I'm not using that in sales because it's great to see that in lists and whatnot, but it's troubling for the industry. It means that you cannot scale a large organization on top of WordPress, which is kind of what I alluded to earlier today. Mm -hmm. And and um, yeah, in terms of in terms of manpower, it also it, it it kind of also comes from the same concept that things take you know five times longer on Drupal or 50 times longer on Java, for example, right? Meaning that for the same problem, you normally use like five to 10 uh, times more people to, to solve the same problem. And when you don't have that need in WordPress, that just makes it harder to scale if you want to do that, right? So that's kind of one of the challenges here. Um, the other thing is that most companies, like most professional agencies, uh, like Devrix, but again, like uh, TenUp or WebDev or HumanMate or uh, whomever want to name kind of from top list or crowd uh, favorite, um, most most agencies are acting as consultancies, right? And that is a big difference. Now, most of the companies that you're referring to in Poland, for example, same for Ukraine, some in Romania, like the, the largest, the larger hubs, are outsourced, uh, meaning that someone has to dictate what they do, and they're kind of leasing people who happen leasing. to know PHP. Exactly, body, body leasing or body shop, whatever you want to call it. And 
it's a different model, right? So it's everyone who needs people elsewhere can rent three or four or five or 10 people for specific things and they can kind of distribute what they do. Now, it's different when working with an agency where you're not, that's not an outsource, it's an agency. The agency solves specific problems. You know, performance, security, speed, stability, maintenance, design, like content management, whatever it is. So it's specific problems. It's a higher hourly rate. You can't just hire five people because at these rates it's going to be unsustainable. Meaning that most projects are anywhere between, let's say, I don't know, 60 to 300 hours a month per client on average, right? We have some as low as, I think, 30. We have some as high as 500. Uh, but that's kind of an exception for the most part. So with that in mind, it's hard to just offload 10 or 15 people to a client. You actually have to manage the process and manage the teams and build teams and backfill people and to ensure that there's a quality assurance person behind the team and there's a project manager leading that team and that everything is following the same process and you're maintaining quality across the board. That's why it's a consultancy. That's why it costs more. Uh, but that's also why it's harder to scale because it's more expensive. Uh, you can't, your ROI per client is lower or at least your LTV is lower or kind of monthly recurring revenue per client is lower. Uh, and, and you only have so many people who can help you scale that portfolio of recurring clients. Um, yeah, so, so I guess that's kind of what it boils down to. I don't, now if it's a good or bad thing, I don't know, like with an outsourcing company, yes, for sure, it's easier. Like you know that you always hire someone, you just charge twice or 2.5 times to compensate for profit and like a desk and internet and a laptop, whatever it is. If you lose a client, you fire people, right? I don't think it's a brilliant business model myself that just don't enjoy that, like you have no relation to these people like they're just people working for a client that's paying you and you're paying them you're like a broker like yeah, yeah, it's exactly. i yeah, don't it's like get it potatoes. exactly exactly so i personally cannot relate to that i don't enjoy it i don't i don't see it's almost like a salesperson on a commission right like they work on a project that i deliver them and i'm charging a commission paying them a portion of that mm, sure mm, yeah yeah, yeah, and and um, do you see? Um, no, because I wanted to circle back to what you said previously about um, advising different businesses. Do you see any uh, differences between Europe-based and US-based uh, organizations you help, or is it like you no? Know, at some level, they are they are very you know they, the problems are very similar, revolving around you know technology, sales, marketing. Uh, or, or is it like, do, does is it differentiated between geographies? Um, in terms of of payment potential, I would say that the U.S. generally pays more, in my experience. Um, it also stems from the average development salaries, right? Uh, if you take a look at Europe, the I think the highest salaries for developers are Switzerland, Norway, Sweden, maybe Denmark. Like even the UK is pretty low in the kind of uh, WordPress list. We've had conversations with WordPress leads and like we just, you know, pitch a proposal or whatever it is and say, well, I can hire someone for, for like, you know, $2,500 monthly salary. And I'm like, dude, if you can... If you can find people for that, refer I'm, them to back to me. I will I, hire them. <laughs> I hire all of them. I hire all of them. No questions asked. You know, 
you're just that's just not developers earning that much, right? So so that perspective, that level of misunderstanding of kind of what you get for what you pay and kind of what level kind of the skills gap and the expertise gap, that that's kind of one of the challenges. So when you compare that with, you know, normally low six level salaries um, in kind of most of the states or like honestly Google interns and like Meta and stuff like in the Bay Area, they started something like 170,000 annual salary, and then there's some stocks or options, right? So we're talking 15 grand for someone with zero days of working experience. Um, it, it's surreal. Most people would dream, like people with over 10 years of experience in Europe would dream of that salary in Europe, even as senior consultants and professionals. And that's an internal level salary in the Bay Area, just because it's that expensive. So. So that's why it's kind of, you know, that that's why the states are the preferred destination. That's why, you know, 65, 70% of our business is in North America. There are exceptions, but, but, but yeah. So I think just in terms of price rates and stuff in Europe, it's hard unless it is an international organization that's normally headquartered in the states or it's a well-funded startup or it's a really kind of large established institution like an old legal firm or, you know, one of the popular publications or anything like that. It's just the scale, the costs, and also the scale, especially if you have a local publication. Just if you think of The Guardian or New York Times, New York Post, LA Times, any any website in English has a total you know, audience of possibly, I don't know, 2 billion people or 3 billion people that can read that website. And if it's a local website in, in, in Swedish or in Polish, for example, you just have a very limited maximum total addressable market, which makes it really hard to hit that level of problems and generate that level of revenue simply due to the fact that it's limited by location, language, area, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, what about problems the, 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 the organizations face? And I, I'm not referring to the agencies, but or is it like you uh, help mainly other agencies of different sort or other end clients? Agencies don't... It, uh, Agencies are already working on thin margins. So normally if you're more than, I know, four or five or six or eight or 10 people, your hourly rate is quickly becoming prohibitive and it's getting trickier to adapt to an agency workflow. That's at least my experience. Again, the, mm -hmm. there are exceptions, especially with body leasing. There are exceptions, but it's uh, we have agencies reaching out to us, charging less than what we do. And like there are five people teams trying to outsource and I'm like, well, that's why you're five people. You're just undercharging. And yes, that's why you're closing clients because, yeah, but also that's why you're having problems because you're working with cheap clients, not paying you enough for expensive problems. So there's a mismatch, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted also to ask about this uh, business course you mentioned, you know, how can you tell me a little bit more about this? Because this is this is also an interesting, uh, you know, stuff you do. Yeah, so I've been, again, my parallel life, you know, in addition to the agency route is I also have other companies. One of them is an advisory firm. So I work as a business advisor for different companies, like some of them are hourly, some are kind of retainer based or fractional C-level and things like that, right? Uh, so in, in some case, I lead internal courses or I speak at universities and I just teach business concepts, and I manage most of my content and kind of lessons and learnings in my own blog or social media. So MarioPesha.com is my own website, and I publish 
mostly everything about anything that I stumble upon structured in a way of, again, those kind of pillars, you know, business strategy, recruitment, management, sales, marketing, technology, and, um, uh, you know, compliance uh, of sorts. And there's also kind of a leadership section. There's also a self-development section, which is discipline, motivation, time management, productivity, all these things, right? So, I'm working on these guides. Uh, I teach some of them at you know courses and seminars and webinars or so for universities. I work with organizations teaching them, and I also have kind of a community that I started. One can sign up, get access to most of my resources and some of my time and so on. Again, uh, on my own website. Um, the reason I'm doing that is um, first off, it's a great uh, way for me to structure my own data and my information, like. You know, I've done management guides four years ago. I don't remember exactly what I do. If I hire a new major, I can actually hand them that. And like, that's what we do. That's how we treat people. This is conflict resolution. This is negotiation. This is, so it's great. And I come in and, and update every now and then. Great for sales. Again, you know, great t testimony of how we think, how we work, what we do. Uh, and I also uh, am currently working on a alternative MBA book that I just want to hand over with, with some of these tips. So yeah, it's kind of my, I'm really passionate about education uh, and in an ideal world, I would probably keep teaching at universities or boot camps or startup communities or whatever it is. Yeah, that's, that's great stuff. And I, uh, now and then I read about, you know, if you really want to um, uh, learn something, you know, write about this, or if you want to uh, be better thinker, start writing and you know with publishing this is a perfect medium to be you know smarter person yeah well again for me good karma is important and i don't think it's fair to be in a position of advantage like being born in a first world country of some sorts or at least not a third world country uh getting access to food shelter then electricity, clothing, and all that, uh, getting early access to technology and the internet, uh, to some more or less decent education, to some career opportunities and so forth. Like getting all of that and achieving something and being healthy, uh, for me, giving back is, is mandatory. Like I, again, you can't, you can't ask people to do something. You can make them do something, but for me, it's mandatory. Uh, one of the reasons why you know joined the WordPress community is that community aspect, helping one another, the ability to use WordPress for students. I've I've taught different WordPress courses and seminars and workshops even to kids, right? Because you can set up WordPress for a kid and help them learn how to design WordPress themes or just you know design through a premium theme or whatever it is, or or just write, you know, start writing their own blog or uh, you know take a photo of their own pictures and start a gallery, right? It's so inspiring and exciting for me. If you're in a third world country and you still have access to a computer of sorts, you can still start building WordPress websites. It, it provides opportunities. So again, it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse, right? WordPress gives the opportunities that make it the reason I'm there, but also makes it so hard to run an actual business, uh, which is again, kind of the other end of the spectrum. But, but yeah, that's why I'm passionate about education. For me, once again, if you have that opportunity, if you're fortunate enough, you just, it's it's an obligation as a human being to do that and seeing how people do philanthropy or like you know bill gates doing the melissa and bill kind of foundation and all that it's um yeah i mean how would you evolve the world unless you do that kind of stuff uh, we are we are um entering um 
ground that is very like uh, charged but uh, you know um in the us this is very popular to be a donor of different sorts like charities written into the i think uh you know um i recently um, learned that for example mormons in the us are donating 10% of their salary to the to the church that then you know different stuff happens to the money but you know this is like integrated into you know sharing and, and 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 so on so but also this is so you know very little benefits in the us for example for 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 young mothers and and this is this is like for me this is a lot of um um contrasts where you have very little protection for the employee and at the same time you are expected to share uh, for the philanthropy and this is like it's not like you want to do this because you think you like in your case right because there is no like a uh, systemic pressure to be you know to to give to the charity whereas there it's so popular that this is you know natural you know university asks you to make a donation as a present hi mario would you like to make a little gift to our university you know <laughs> here and now so i i think this is um I think what you are doing is much more uh, true than you know what's if, even with the larger sums because you can deduct you know everywhere you can deduct this from the from the income but uh, there it's like you know um, I think it might in some cases be a little cold blood still you don't have to share your wealth but uh, it's like I have mixed feelings about you know charity in the U.S. for example. Well, I mean, see, as as most other things, you can you can do either money laundering or tax evasion or some other shady stuff with good or bad things, right? Uh, one example is we are kind of one of our clients is an organization uh, in the gun industry, right? So we don't support you know terrorism or some other crazy stuff, but guns are legal in the states. And there are communities around guns and like people who are exchanging tips on how to store them, clean them, protect them for kids, or, like protect their own households or like, you know, deal with animal attacks or things like that. So as with everything, they're kind of good or bad things. Same with religions and with politics, right? It depends on kind of what side of the spectrum you are. Um, so I wouldn't condemn a specific thing and, and you know, when we first started chatting several weeks ago with you, like I told you, like I'm not into the, you know, Web3 necessarily and kind of that crypto blockchain. The reason is, again, I like the technology, I like the innovation, I like the concept, I like the ledger, I like, you know, decentralized finance and stuff. I like the concept, but there very there are lots of implementations that are wrong. I don't think that the current direction is mostly positive. And that's why I'm not backing up the idea because I don't think it's cleared out and regulated enough yet to make sense, right? But it, but as with everything else, there are pros and cons. It's it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, uh, so I just see charity more or less the same thing. Lots of people use it for tax reasons or just you know passing money to different entities or so. Personal marketing. <laughs> yeah, but but honestly, I'd rather have them do that for charities that at least do something than you know 
wire them to offshore accounts and then buy islands, right? So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is it could be worse than that yeah, as yeah, long as the charities, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm just comparing this to what you can do in Europe because this is, I think, uh, in Europe it's a little bit different than, um, than, than, than in States, but I'm not living in States, so I probably know nothing about this, but sharing an opinion about this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mario, thank you very much uh, for the for the very nice conversation. I I, I enjoyed this very much. Uh, maybe you'd like to share something, you know, at the very end because we have also like slowly slowly wrap this up. Um, is there anything you would like our listeners to like uh, you know share at the at the very end? Uh, for starters, I want to apologize for the noise and me having to switch places due to the construction work going across the entire building from different sites. It was just crazy. So apologies for, for that. Uh, and yeah, kind of the main thing is I, I, I think that just being creative in life is pretty important because being creative means that you can adjust and you're perceptive and you're listening to trends you're exploring opportunities, you're questioning assumptions, you're not um, sticking to old habits that probably don't make a lot of sense anymore. Uh, You explore opportunities, it's going to make you more successful in business and as an individual and career. And hopefully, you know, the more you achieve higher levels, higher degrees of success, you are uh, going to start giving back more and more to, you know, great initiatives. That's kind of my TLDR. Thank you very much, beautiful. So hopefully, you know, uh, till the next time. Thank you very much, Mario. Thanks for the invite to you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. If you like what you've just heard, don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. On the other hand, if you've got a question we haven't answered yet, feel free to reach out to us directly. Just go to awesomestudio.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode of the Awesome to Know podcast.